0: Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate it if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Writers and Illustrators of the Future is one of the longest-running writing competitions in the world with four decades of providing a helping hand as initially conceived by Warren Hubbard. I also want to let you know that the Writers of the Future volumes are available in bookstores throughout the U.S., Canada, the U.K., South Africa, and Australia, as well as through all major online retailers. So whether you are looking to discover top new voices in the genre or are an aspiring writer or artist looking to see what these artists have done to win, this book is for you. Today's guest is Judith Anderley. Judith, along with her husband, Michael, I've built an indie publishing empire and created the 20 books to 50 K annual conference. She was a guest on this podcast almost two years ago, where we spoke about publishing contracts and rights. You can find that as episode 164. That was the first time I addressed this as its own subject. I was recently in Frankfurt at the international book show and met up with Judith while having lunch. I asked if she'd be interested in coming back for another episode on the writers and illustrators of the future podcast. I'm delighted that she agreed. A lot has transpired in publishing over the last two years, especially as a result of AI. And this interview is something you will definitely be interested in listening to. Welcome, Judith.
1: Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. And and thank you to your uh, listeners for listening to this podcast.
0: Absolutely. You're very welcome. And uh, I'll be thanking you throughout this podcast (laughs) for your insight provided. (laughs) So I guess just as as a recap, before getting my questions, please give me an overview of your history that led up to you being so successful in publishing. I know you've had a lot of marketing experience as well as your legal.
1: Yes, thank you, John. So uh, first of all, I want to let your listeners know that I normally don't sound like this. I'm uh, undergoing the annual gunk that comes out and so um, I'm just um, overcoming it and so my voice sounds a little raspier. So hopefully those will come out clearly. But um, just a quick uh, background, I, um, m- my career has been in the marketing field, med- medis- mainly in the medical device pharmaceutical world. Um, I, th- my last job was with Novartis, uh, the largest pharmaceutical company in the world. And throughout my career, I always aspired to learn more and become the best self that I could. And because of that, I went to law school in between um, working. And so I would go to law school at night and work during the day, got an MBA as well in marketing. And because of that, I've been able to combine the experiences both that I've gained while working through schooling and now um, while working with uh, LMBPN as the chief commercial officer for the corporate side, which is the side that manages all of the English. And I'm the chief executive officer for the international side, which is the side that manages all languages outside of English.
0: Can you also explain? Uh, the definition of LMBPN, because that's in it, that's its own is- interesting history, how it transitioned from it's beginning to what it is now.
1: Yes. So actually, when um, I was working during the full time, I didn't realize that Michael Anderley, who I happened to be married to, at that time, he had his own company as well. It was a marketing business, working with several companies, uh, including BMW, and 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 marketing and digital marketing. But at the same time, he was writing as well. And uh, he would see me come home. And um, you know, as you can imagine, after 20 years in an industry, in, partic- in particular with um, high uh, price uh, Priority and, and high dollar amounts. Um, a lot of stress comes with those jobs, so I would come home stressed, and part of my outlet was fashion. And so he created a website for me that was a fashion website, and uh, we were thinking about what to call it. And he said, "Well, what are the top fashion company, you know, cities in the world?" And we thought about London, Madrid, Barcelona, and so then he said, "Okay, well, he created a, a landing website for me where I would actually put together outfits just." As an outlet. And um, I had some followers and he named it LN as an Nancy BPN for all of the top fashion cities. Well, at the same time, he was developing his business and started to write. And so then he developed a publishing company and asked for my input. And uh, being the marketing person that I am, I said, well, you need to brand it. And we started um, thinking about it and brainstorming of what it could be. And we were traveling and I went to Madrid at the time when he was, you know, aspiring writer. Uh-huh. and um, realize that the top publishing companies in the world are similar in some way to the t- uh, top fashion cities in the world. And so then um, we developed the branding for LM, Mary, BPN, out of that. So it stands for London, Madrid, Barcelona, Paris, New York, which are the top cities in the world that have the publishing companies developed into them. And so that's where that comes from. Um, if you look at our logo, when you look at it, we also put a lot of thought behind the logo itself. And so at the genesis of what Michael was doing, he was being uh, disruptive because he was sharing, knowledge sharing, right? He was learning. And as he learned, and as he became successful, he was sharing his knowledge. And so that was being disruptive because a lot of people were knocking him because he was not charging for sharing the knowledge and uh, they didn't believe what he was sharing. So then uh, we thought, you know, with the imagination that you have being so disruptive, that should be the genesis of everything that you do. And so you will notice that LMBPN is really the basis of it is disruptive imagination. And disruptive imagination has a rising sun over it. And that rising sun pushes the LMBPN uh, letters, which within stand within silos. And believe it or not, those silos also stand for something, which is the different ent- entertainment availability that there are. So eventually a merchandising side, television and networking side, uh, obviously the publishing side is there with books, uh, eventually with comics and everything. And so that's, there's a lot packed in both into the logo itself, both in the creative and the actual letters themselves.
0: That's amazing. But that's cool because it's, it's definitely a, um, I mean, I, I've got, uh, Michael is on my alerts, so every time he goes to the new, on the Amazon alerts as a followed author, and I'm getting like one a week, two a week, you know, new new out from from Michael. So that would be something of a different interview with with Michael. But with yourself now, there's a lot uh, has transpired over the last two years with respect to publishing, the use of AI, uh, copyrights, and so I just want to be able to. Um, to discuss that in this interview, so that people who are, whether it's going to you know whatever intellectual property, whether it's going to be stories or art, you know some some guidelines and some not legal advice but like some here's some direction or, or some things that you can follow to help you to make the right decision and go where to look. Mm-hmm. So I realize that's pretty broad. So just starting with, then I know that. At least it was AI is AI work is not copyrightable right, so if a person decides because I know Amazon was being deluged with AI books and stories like that, so in terms of any from your own perspective because you work a lot in a in a very productive publishing house, so any thoughts or anything you can share on the, on the subject of the use of AI um, if you've got Anything that at least holds up as of today in January of 2024, which might be different in February 2024, but at least yes. in January 2024, any do's and don'ts on the subject of use of AI?
1: Yeah. So, you know, at the offset to your point, this is a conversation and uh, it's based on my opinion, right? So sure, any exactly. any insights that I provide are not meant to be legal advice, nor are they meant really to be authoritative because frankly, in in the law- there's nothing authoritative other than what's uh, the laws that are passed by Congress or president, which is what uh, American law is based on. And president being the outcomes of cases that came before, right? When right. attorneys go before a court, they base their arguments based on prior cases and, and the, the outcomes of those cases and cases can vary. Sometimes the right. same subject can go to different states with different variations. And so that's why um, attorneys base those on the president. So as, of, as we speak today, frankly, the law, the copyright law itself has not changed as of 1976. It's still the same. Uh, president, which is cases relating to copyright law, are still the same, right? They have up to now not involved AI. Now, recently, there's different um, lawsuits that have been brought forth you know, by various authors and associations and everything. And I think they're, they're suing the different uh, companies, uh, internet companies based on the use of AI. So um, earlier you asked me if um, the use of AI is copyrightable and my answer was no, but it should be qualified, right? If you mm-hmm. as an author put out a book and publish it under your name, and you claim that it's yours, right? Because you're putting your name on it, whether it be a pen name or your actual name. Um, And you're telling the public, here is my book. Is it copyrightable? Well, it depends. Did you write it? And to what extent did you write it? And as you know, uh, even up to today, you can use somebody else to help you to write it, right? And you can outsource it to um, you know, what's in the industry it's called a ghostwriter, um mm-hmm. and then and and you know you can claim it as your own because that's an outsourcing, and you can expand it and everything else and of course arguments come legal arguments come to that use uh by the same token um you can uh you know use some contents of whatever it's out there whether it be facts right you can google and use facts and copy those facts because that's what you're doing and -hmm. you're inputting them into your story that falls under the umbrella under copyright of fair use because the copyright law is is designed to protect the rights of an originator but in order to be an originator you have to gain insights from somewhere right nobody is waking up and automatically coming (laughs) up with ideas i mean all authors anyone that you speak to talks about the fact that when they were growing up they read a lot And obviously, when they read a lot, they learned, whether innately or whether they went to school, they learned about prose, they learned about putting stories together. So arguably, you could say, well, is it their own ideas, or is it ideas that they got from books that they read? Irrespective, what the law, the copyright law, predicts is the innovation itself. So innovation can borrow, which is the fair use, can borrow a little bit. And again, we can talk about fair use, and there's components to fair use, but in general, um... As long as you put it out there and you put your name on it, you are claiming that it's yours. Now, if you took your complete content, if you took AI and ask AI, hey, whomever, whichever AI you're using, write me a 200-page word book on such and such, the machine will probably do it, right? And if Mm -hmm. you take that whole content and you put it out there, that content is not copyrightable. And the issue there is because there was no human involvement. So the recent cases that have come before the court, I think there was a recent one in August, where somebody was trying to copyright a particular uh, artwork that was based on the use of AI. Now the issue in that case and the reason why it went against the the innovator, right, the, the the creator of that artwork, was that he, as a human, did not list himself as the creator. Instead, he listed the machine as the creator, and so the copyright law rejected it because they said. No, there's no human involvement. He argued he went to federal court, and the court based their findings on the same findings as the copyright uh, office, which they said there's no human involvement and if you look at the law, the copyright laws they said they talk about human involvement and the, you know the extent mm. so I- I'm not sure where the confusion lies where if there's no human involvement, there is no copyrightable, whether it's artwork, whether it's writing, whatever you say you know if you have a machine the 3d sometimes the argument comes well if you use a 3d machine is that art, artwork copyrightable you know there's a major artist i saw in 60 minutes that there's the argument that says that he's not the creator because of the use of machines you know his argument is i am the creator because i'm involved in the creation of it so again it's to the extent that human involvement is developed that comes to the copyrightable now when it comes to authors you know um in the authors. I hear that there's a lot of concern and rightfully so, right? Because you listen to the news and everything. But with, if you think about uh, the process, just like what anything else, you know, and you start just at the basis, you think, has the law changed? And the answer is no. Copyright law remains the same as of 1976, right? There's certain years where there's a protection beyond the life of the the creator. Same ha- has not changed. Then if so, what has changed? Well, the use of AI. Well, how does mm-hmm. the use of AI change it? Well, it depends. To what extent are you using AI? I mean, when you think about, for example, one of the, um, you know, when you read up on, on cases, you, you hear about photographers who can copyright their pictures, right? But what are they mm-hmm. using to take those pictures? They're using a machine, So arguably, you could say, well, are you really the the photographer? You're using a machine to take that picture with a lens with components in it. But the argument and the courts have found that the reason why photographers have the right to it is because they are human and it's their posing of the machine. They figure out when the lighting comes on, they do all of these things. And that's the output belongs to them. And so the use of the machine itself is not an issue, just like AI. If you use AI, and that's why... I mean, I can't speak for Amazon, obviously. That's above way above my pay grade, although I would love <laughs> to be at that pay grade. <laughs> but they're asking, right? And a lot of people are concerned, why are they asking? I mean, and, and if you think about it, I don't think there's anything, hopefully not anything nef- nefarious about it. They just want to protect themselves. Because if, you, if they're asking you how much AI input was in this, and if you claim, oh, there was no AI, and they're able to check it, because come on, AI has been around since the 60s. There's, there's systems to check just like in school, you know, teachers are able to find if you've plagiarized whatever you're doing mm-hmm. the same way they can check. So if you've claimed when you, you know, you're publishing through them, they're putting out the book as yours and they're able to find that you lied because it actually is written completely by an AI, they can take you out, right? That's, that's mm-hmm. why they're doing it. They're just in a way trying to protect themselves because they're putting these things out based on what you're telling them. And if it's not true, then they're going to take it out.
0: I get it. So then on we had a a thing come up recently a few months ago where we had one of our illustrator winners. Mm -hmm. It came up when we were – the way the contest works, you've got your 12 writer winners and 12 artist winners, 12 illustrator winners, and each of the 12 illustrator winners is assigned one of the winning stories to illustrate, and then uh, that's what gets published in each year's anthology of Elrin Hubbard Presents Writers of the Future. Well, it came up as one of the artists was doing the uh, the art for one of the winning stories that was AI. Um, the coordinating judge saw things that were suspicious and so challenged uh, the artist and came up, yes, this was AI. And we've specifically added to our rules last year, no AI art, no AI stories, because this mm-hmm. is it's a writing and art company. We went we don't want to know how, how good a prompt a person can write. We want to know mm-hmm. how good of art they could do. So they were disqualified because it violated the rules. And um, they refused to return the the $500 that they got for winning the, the competition. Mm-hmm. And um, that's its own separate thing there. But it's almost like when you when you have a rule, you're going to have some people will immediately take that as a challenge to game it. You know, can I can i can i can i beat the system you know hmm. you las vegas specialized and people in people coming can i can i game the system can i can i beat right. the system and and make my billion dollars right so that's something too that why i was interested in talking about it as well like there are ways of telling and in an art i mean if the worst case scenario you can say okay good show me your earlier layer files right yeah of your of your story and then also with a book you can do that too because if it just comes out all you have is you know one size fits all then you know that's the person didn't write it it was if you don't have any earlier even with the typographical errors and cuz every book is going to have something you're going to change on it when from your first draft
1: well two things first of all um <clears throat> with all due respect to to you all because you're putting the, the podcast together I'm surprised um what I know of Elhorn Huber was that he was an innovator, right?
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm
1: surprised that the contest that you all are putting together says no AI, because no AI is basically cutting out innovation. Uh, because AI, again, it's another tool that's being used to innovate. And like I said, copyright law allows for fair use. And fair use being and how, what amount are you borrowing, right? It depends mm-hmm. on the amount. I mean, to your point, perhaps you, you all might want to look at what the Amazon writing, because I'm sure their attorneys have vetted it and it's written a particular way that does allow some amount of AI. So, because again, it's part of the innovation. Now I'm not telling you all how to run your contest. You can't say no AI in which you require somebody to artistically create. Let me clarify. Like, no, no AI art. Like no, when you machine created, completely a hundred percent. Yes. Yes. Right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. So that, but that's when you say no AI, it means nothing. No, no that
0: mean, but, but the, the person created the art through prompts.
1: Yeah. Again, yes. Yeah, yeah, illu- is-
0: see, the, we have an illustration contest. Right. It's to be an illustrator, not to be someone that can generate prompts. That's a different competition. Right. But if there's something, once someone wants to pay for that, that's fine. More power to them. Right. This is an art to, for illustrators to be able to, and you can see when someone, okay, here's your exit. We have live models coming in as part, one of the, the exercises that's done during the week-long workshop. Right. And they do live, you got five minute, ten minute, fifteen minute, and twenty-five minute sketches you do of, of models posing. Right. You can't do that if you don't know how to draw. Right. That that's that's all. So this is for illustration and you are gonna have people that will wanna go the the other route. Yeah. Which is which is fine. That's just not what, writers what and you do. The yeah. Yeah. Is.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, again, you know, I think that actually uh, keep an eye on that case because uh, the federal courts just came down on that creator uh, because the, the, the requirement was that there was the reason was because there was no human involvement. But if, if he's able to challenge it and argue and, you know, he should have, frankly, because now the, if you look at the copyright office, they're allowing for you to go back and say, I did use some AI which is innovative, you know, they're allowing for you to, if you have a copyright, but you did to somebody, you're able to go in there and say, I did some of it. we
0: have that, that's for the art, you've got, you know, even with some of our judges, they talk about, yeah, they come up with some of the different initial ideas, but then they take it from there, and now they, okay, they,
1: yeah, yeah, okay, and they develop it, right, which is, again, innovation, right, because innovation has to be based on something. So completely. So, uh, and I'm sorry, your second question was, as far as keeping track of what you do and what's copyrightable, I completely agree with you, whether it's, whether you're writing or whether you're creating something that's uh, creative, you know, your early drafts are going to be what's going to protect you. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because some of the concern that I hear from authors are, well, you know, how can I prove, for example, let's assume Amazon makes a mistake, which they can, right? And they come back and Mm -hmm. say, oh, no, this is completely AI. You know, let's assume that, because that, that, that's the only argument they can have. It's right. completely AI. And then you could say, well, no, here's my proof. You know, I started writing on this date. And it's always a good idea to jot down when you start writing, because the law protects you as of the moment you start creating. Um, and so a lot of people think that they have to get um, copyright protection in order for their book to be copyrightable. And that's not the case. Copyright begins the moment you start creating, right? You yourself innovating this thing. And so it's always a good idea to jot down the timelines. When did you start? Um, and then to your point, the notes and drafts, because all of that's mm-hmm. going to be proved that the output had a lot of you, human involvement into it. And again, whether you borrowed some component from this or whether, you know, you took some of that, that's depending on the extent that you're using, irrelevant because as long as you were the main creator, then that should help you for your argument of why that belongs to you.
0: Exactly. Yeah, so that's, that's the main thing is to track where it's going. And again, the purpose of, of the contest is, to discover new talent, creative talent, you know, and that's if creative talent quote unquote requires my creativity is how to properly word my prompts to the, whatever AI I'm using. That's not what this contest is about. Right. You know, so that, that's all. That's, that's, we're trying to make it very clear. We want people that can write because if, you know, you, your 24-hour story, which is one of the exercises you have at the writer workshop, where they go and if all they do is say, okay, this prompt, this prompt, this prompt, and they come out with it, and then they come in and bring it, and this is my story, that defeats the purpose of what this contest is for. And then some of our our, our better-selling judges, the experienced judges, they've also experienced seeing the, the AI story versus you know, what they're able to do in the actual subject of creativity and originality and prime thought with respect to that story, you know, you know, so I, that's why I wanted to to discuss with you on this was just, I know it's right now it's still muddy water because mm-hmm. it's not with this new innovation, but, you know, anytime there's been a new innovation, it's been, okay, this is the end of, I mean, publishing yes. has been, is going to die three or four times in the past.
1: Right, right.
0: You know, it's not going to die, obviously.
1: No. I mean, when you think about it, I, you know, let's take analogies, right? Because if we stay within books, people are going to say, well, you know, that's your experience, and rightfully so, right? We have a different experience. Yeah. But if you look at music, for example, uh, Stevie Wonder spoke about that. Uh, there was a, you know, there's so many AI-related uh, profiles that have gone on, and he brought up a good point. He said when synthesizers came out, I mean, who, who's greater than Stevie Wonder when it comes to innovation and in music, right? He's, he, I, don't, yeah. I don't think anybody could argue that he's not a great artist, and yet he himself says Beethoven that was
0: pretty good, but he's well, not. Yeah,
1: well, but yeah, well, you know, <laughs> but I can't speak to what he used in order to innovate, but I'm sure he used tools to innovate. But yeah. when it comes to Stevie Wonder, he said when synthesizers came out, the argument was that you were not being a true artist if you use synthesizers. Because synthesizers were a methodology to put different things together. And he said, for me, it was wonderful. It opened up a whole new outlet because then I was able to put music together that otherwise would have been very difficult. First of all, because he didn't have the resources right, financially Mm -hmm. to bring in a whole orchestra to play violins or to do this. And so when you think about it in that way, you go, oh. That makes sense. Sure. And now, and now, if you were to tell somebody, well, you're not a true artist because you use synthesizers, well, then you wouldn't have Britney Spears or anyone like that. So, you know, if you think about it in the same way as AI, you think, you know, AI is just another version of a synthesizer, it's there to help. If you want the help, if you need the help to help. Now, if you overuse it, to your point, if you're mm-hmm. entering a contest and you're claiming it as your own and you completely use this thing to put it out, well, then you're not being completely honest, right? Right. So, so there's where the gray line comes. Now, Millie Vanilli, remember, I don't know if you know them, at one point, yeah. these two, they said Lip-sync. that they were, right. So think about it. In that case, they were very successful in the whole thing, but they were using someone else's. And that's completely different than what Stevie Wonder did you know, or does with synthesizers, right? There, there's, you see the spectrum of using the systems, whether right. you're going to use it because you're going to put it out as your own when it's really not your own, or whether you're going to use it as a tool to help you to develop even greater things that you normally would. That's where the the nuances come in.
0: Yeah, so with respect to that, and that's that's a very good point on, um and I wanted to take this, with respect to this contest, Writers and Illustrators of the Future, as compared to publishing in general, because mm-hmm. Amazon's taking they were inundated. We there were even even other um magazines that had to shut their um their portals because they were just being inundated with AI stories and they were just glutted. Who, know, who's just, they? I'm sorry. I, it I was it mind. was I'm trying to remember which magazine it was. Okay, it so was there one,
1: was a magazine that was getting a lot of if, stories.
0: Yeah, and they and they And so they had to shut the portal because it was just they just being inundated with stories that were that were being AI generated
1: that they were publishing that the magazine was publishing as you know yeah but they were
0: strictly generated but they couldn't publish because they couldn't copyright their magazine then because this was a story that wasn't written by a person so they couldn't it was a problem for them okay so with respect to the writers and illustrators of the future I said we've got it now so that we have uh, we've made very clear that the person needs to to create the story if they're going to, you know, I've seen some amazing art where somebody takes photographs and then they take that and they scan that, they take that photo and they scan it in, they use that as part of their art. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's, yeah, can be argued as a comparable methodology, you know, of using, using other technology to help you with your art, you know, taking a picture and putting that in there and then building around your, a, a photograph as compared to just painting.
1: Yes, that's a, a perfect analogy, for example, of is it really creative, right? Because they took an, a photograph that's They took a photo.
0: They they went out and they took a photograph. They took
1: it their phone. Okay, so it's, yes. not, it's not someone else's. They took the picture, they scanned it, and then they used it. For, th-
0: and yeah. then they, yes, yeah, so they worked on it. So that's, that's legit, you know, with the, respect uh, yeah. to our contest. We, you know, they took a picture, they put it in there, they then built around it. So that was their... That was their their submission, their art that they use, and there's been some really cool stuff that I've seen that's published in our books from that, as compared to going in and just doing prompts. But again, our purpose that we have with our contest is specifically, you know, for someone who wants to make it a career as as an artist. And I got what you're saying there, like okay, being able to use this stuff as an adjunct or as an assistant to creating their art, which is the senior day in creating their art. Right. Putting a, because the other thing too, that my understanding at least is the, is the computers are as smart as the data that they've scanned, that they've skimmed. Right. You know, so they don't actually originate. They don't create stuff. They just take and recomposite what they've already skimmed.
1: Right. So so for example, large language models, you know, like ChatGPT and, and, and like them, they're not meant to be correct. So anybody right. who uses the data as a source, for example, is really risking getting incorrect information because those models are are actually designed to sound authoritative. So they will tell you that the sound is that the sun is square and it's blue and and make a statement out of it yeah. <laughs> if you use it and quote it. Then it's up to you, you know, because basically <clears throat> the machines are not designed to be correct. Now they're working on developing machines that are called sentient, that actually think things through and make sure that things are correct, but they're not there yet. So anybody who thinks that using uh, a large language model is, is it's useful, uh, you know... Uh, Irrespective of which side of the political side you're on, you know, Cohen, who is the, used to be the attorney for Donald Trump, right? Um, one of the, the cases that are coming out is he's on probation right now. And, and the argument they use as a brief, remember I spoke earlier about how our, uh, attorneys use precedent, which is earlier cases to argue anything they're arguing. Right. So he used, uh, different cases in his brief to argue why he should have his probation shortened. And uh, the court looked at it and said, oh, okay, great. Well, come to find out some of those cases didn't exist. They were made up. So how does that happen? And so then his attorney goes to Cohen, who Cohen says, well, he used a large language model, a a legal-based large language model as a source. Well, again those those they're not made to be correct they're meant to sound authoritative, so they can tell you that this case found that you know some uh, someone should um sentence should be shortened because x y c when it's just stuff that they're that the computer's putting Computer. out. It doesn't mean that it's true nor valid. And so, um, and so then, you know, the argument is that he is not a practicing, A, not a practicing attorney, and B, that he's not aware, you know, he thought it was a source, kind of like Lexus which is a source of where you can find actual cases. So, you know, I mean, I have my own opinions about that, but suffice it to yeah. say, it's going on all around us in particular in high-level cases like that of people who get paid a lot of money.
0: <laughs> right. So I think that's, I think, you know, when, as this thing gets um, evolved, part of it, I want people as a takeaway is like a mindset. Yes. Because it is changing. So like, from your standpoint, what would be the best mindset for either an artist or an author to have in approaching this?
1: I think that the main thing is to remember that the law has not changed. The law remains the same. What's copyrightable is what you create, right? The tools that you use to create them is up to you. The extent that you use those tools, again, like fair use, how much you take, how much content you take is up to you in order to create what you're going to create. But if you take a lot of content, if you borrow a lot, even in basic, right, um, taking out of books... If you take someone else's book and borrow a lot of it, well, you're probably not going to get a copyright because it's not yours. If you take a sentence or two from somebody's book, arguably that's fair use, right? Depending on making sure that there's a lot of instances in when, that like if you the color purple, if you take Sealy's sentence, you can't take that and put it on your own book because the color purple is well known. And that's a basis for which the, you know, so it depends, yeah. right? But overall, nothing has changed. Stick true to your method. As long as you are being the creator and as long as you're using tools, fair use, you're not borrowing from somebody else, you're not taking from somebody else a lot of it, you should be in a good place. Uh, If if you decide, and again, it's all up to you, if you decide that you want to use a lot of AI, uh, just understand that AI right now is not correct, so you can't use it as a source of factual information. Mm-hmm. You can use it as a source of creativity. But again, to what extent? If you lose a lot of it, and to your point earlier, if, if your intent is to put one over on people, like on a contest or something, you're risking it because what you're doing is, all you're doing is you're copying. And, and nobody has ever won a prize of copying. And the people that have won the prize, their prizes get taken away, right? Mm-hmm. There's instances of that happening. Yeah. And so, you know, just nothing has really changed everything remains the same, the, the, the rules are still the same. Uh, so just stick to the rules and you should be okay.
0: Good, and then, yeah, like with, I know that there's been a few changes of administration at, at high-level universities because of plagiarism in. Yes. Yeah. You know, and to what our, extent, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, so you've got fiction and you've got nonfiction. So fiction is is obviously much more broad and you've got much more latitude to work with facts, you know, quote unquote facts, because it's fiction, you know. And I know that I've had some authors I've worked with who did a lot of research, but because they were in the area of paranormal and ufology and stuff like that, that they were unable to get it through legal as a nonfiction work, even though they had all types of, of supportive evidence, so they had to turn it into a fiction book and release it as a fiction book, mm-hmm. um, just because they couldn't substantiate that or, or wasn't acceptable as evidence with they what they had. But what's the difference between fiction and nonfiction then on, on fair use of like, how would that work? Because I know non, I'm, nonfiction is very much more rigid from what I can see on on using which is what happened recently with these two um, uh, presidents of universities using, you know, material that was in someone else's paper that they took and they just straight copied up, you know, mm-hmm. plagiarism. But on, on fiction, how does that work? If you're using
1: someone else's work? Yeah. <clears throat> well, it will I mean, as long as you cite the reference, right? If you're using a factual, what you believe to be facts, right? As long as you cite and credit the originator, you should be okay. Again, you can't take a whole John Grisham book, put it your yourself and said, and put on there, thanks to John Grisham, you know, because <laughs> if I was John Grisham, I'd sue you. <laughs> yeah. But you know, if you use, if you use, uh, like I, I, I cited the color purple, you know, if you use a Sealy line, for example, what I would do is I would say as used in the color purple by Sealy, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I would literally credit the originator. Because under, and, and as long as it's not, it's not a lot, then you should be okay because the fair copyright has the fair use component, which does allow for some use. Now, there's four different areas. If, if, if somebody was to argue it, well, is, when is it fair use? And it's fair use depending on what you're using it for. Is it for commercial, not commercial? How much of, how much of whatever you're using is, is using? And then, and how, and how valuable is that? To the originator. So, uh, for example, if you're taking a sentence, um, "the sun rises," okay, and it, it came from you know a book that's titled "The Sun Rises." Well, that's the basis <laughs> of the book. You can't use it, and if it's knowledgeable to everybody that that sentence comes from that book, you can't use it. But if you use the "sun rises" you know from some book that used it in the component of it, then then that should not be something where it's it's, it's not fair use. So it depends on how valuable we're using was to the originator. So there's a lot of different four steps that the courts right. look at in order to claim that it's fair use.
0: Okay, that makes sense. And then um so again, anybody listening to this, to keep it so that it's at the 101 level, you know, the introductory level, so, you're, so it makes sense what to do. So, because the idea of this isn't to intimidate or to like back you off. The idea is just to make sure you're you're going into this game and using ai fairly.
1: intelligently yes. yeah and yeah, fairly
0: yes. so, that, yes. so that you don't get some nasty surprise later on where someone says wait a minute you didn't have you know you, this is strictly just an ai story so you're using this to build a reputation
1: which by the way people can say anyways right people will say that anyways yeah
0: yeah yeah, yeah so then so how how to deal with this as you expand yourself as, as an author and I know I've got, you know, some of our judges. They don't use. It. They they write stories themselves. They they sit down. And they create it. You know, Orson Scott Card, Rob Sawyer, um, Dean Wesley Smith. They they're all very. They'll write their stuff. I don't know to what degree somebody might use prompts to come up with different ideas. Right. You know, like, but I'm writing the story. It's their their words that they're rolling out with and the more you've written and the easier it is to do that too. Right. Right. Because once a person's very prolific, you know, several of our more esteemed judges and past judges have said, yeah, you know, throw away your first million words, you know, well, to, yeah. to build your, to build a voice that's yeah. your voice and not somebody yeah. else's.
1: Yeah. But if you equate it, for example, I was reading an article, <clears throat> I'll send it over your way so you can review it. It, it was interesting of a, of a, a top author uh, who said, Listen, um, you know, when you think about it, he says sometimes when he's writing something and he just you know, hits a roadblock and, and goes out and goes into a comic book store, goes into the library and, and looks up books and stuff to help him creatively get out of that rut. Well, it's the same thing. And he said he used AI in that particular case where he said, hey, tell me about a story. And it was about a taxi. I think it was some taxi who you know, becomes sentient and, and, and starts thinking about whatever. So then the AI came back and he said, the passenger had somebody sitting on their lap and started, and he goes, oh, so that little thing about a passenger sitting on his lap helped him to get out of his rut. And he took that idea and ran with it. You know what I'm saying? Yes, so that,
0: that's called a prompt.
1: Yeah. That's yeah. A, oh, I don't know if that's called a prompt, but, but the, the thing is, but, but he could have gotten that idea of, of, a book that he picked up at the bookstore where, you know, somebody's sitting on a lap and he goes, oh, and that it hits him as well. You right. know, so I don't know. It depends on, See again, that, it depends on the extent that you use whatever you're using.
0: Yeah. But that makes sense in terms of the, um, how you're using it and who's the, who's the, uh, the senior sentient behind it.
1: Yes. Correct. Correct. Exactly. There, there yeah. you go. That's the key.
0: Yeah. Now in terms of, um, cause it's getting beam and we're, you know, we've, we're down to like, you know, 15, 20 minutes left here on. Um, I want to take advantage of your prowess as, as a marketing guru too now. And oh, good. <laughs> use, and you know, so, I, cause I wanted to touch on this and have this, but also AI is a big thing. And and in my office, there's the guys that are into um, creating social media and, and mm-hmm. creating all the stuff and they have, it. you know, you've got the different AIs now that will, You can ask for whatever voice you can ask for. You know, I had one played for me the other day. Here's a copy that was submitted. I approved the copy. It's okay. Now we're going to turn this into a social post and say, okay, here it is talking to this person. And now here's Santa Claus doing it. And, you know, it's just all these different things. So, have you, what kind of success have you had on using AI with any of the marketing? Because you guys are like just, everywhere, at least. I I mean, I'm in a world of books, so I see it.
1: (laughs) So, you know, we don't use AI for per se for our advertisements. What we do use is our book covers for the most part. We have um, a couple of graphics people, whether they use, to what extent they use AI, I don't know because we outsource that work. But in general, um, in my, for example, in my case, sometimes I'll write an email and I'm, you know, because of, of my legal side, I've been I've been told that I get a little too um, adversarial or maybe it sounds threatening. When I read <laughs> it, I go, what's threatening about it? You know, I'm like, does, it sounds okay to me, but I don't want to, obviously I don't want to come off that way. So I will literally go and take my email and sometimes run it, run it to chat GPT. And I say, can you make this more, more convincing or, or friendlier? Literally I'll put friendlier and it'll come back with something, you know, and, and then I'm able not to, uh, and I hardly ever take it and copy it because it does, even the AI sounds a little weird. Uh, yeah. but I'll be able to take some words that help me to kind of tone my message down. Uh, so that's the only extent that, to my knowledge that we use uh, for our ad copy and everything is basic. We're pretty much used the same things. So we don't necessarily use AI for ad copy, um, you know, because I mean, it's basically the same messages, right? Come and read yeah. our books or come here and that. Um, so, so we're not extensively using it. It doesn't mean that we're opposed to it. We just haven't found a need yet where we could see that it would be a benefit. Um, but if yeah. we were to find that it, it would be a benefit, we would definitely use it.
0: Yeah, I mean definitely there's um grammarly sort of falls loosely yeah. in that in that direction <laughs> exactly
1: of or or actually word perfect, right when you're using word and you're you know it'll help you correct spelling yeah. and all that. Yeah. you can use uh thesaurus and it'll give you suggestions of words, you know so yeah,
0: yeah, so there's definite tools again, it's like the senior creator behind your your work that you're doing correct is is what we're actually looking to be able to to resolve
1: yeah i so, like what you said actually and i'm going to jot it down who is the sentient right that's yeah. what it comes down to yes
0: yeah and that makes to me I, I can think with that because then you're controlling the vertical and the horizontal so yes you know um you can make your own twilight zone or whatever <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah you can yeah yeah <laughs> call it so, something else though because you get sued if you <laughs> exactly
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay so now on um what do you because you're with with um lmbpn you've got a lot of content that you're that you're putting out there on a on a routine basis and so you've got michael and then it's michael plus mm-hmm. uh, now is you know so or which created is a, by michael yeah and um which is definitely not the first time. And um, so from yourself, any suggestions or uh, for other authors on working with other people or building up, you know, an empire like you've done, like, cause it's very, very successful and you have a lot of output,
1: yeah, this is more on, on, on Michael's run, but I've heard him give talks and he's, he's been very open and public about it, you know, yeah. so it depends and depends on, I think it really depends on how much you want to put up with as an individual. So, um, you know, when it comes to working with other people is how long, how well you get along, right? Mm-hmm. And many of the, um, successful authors will talk about that, you know, and, um, as a matter of fact, another, another author that, uh, was writing about it said that, He used to use a collaborator when he first started out, but it got to the point where the collaborator wanted more credit on the books than he, than the author himself was willing to give. And so then at that point, they parted ways because, Mm -hmm. you know, the author said, no, these are my books you're collaborating. So in that particular instance, in Michael's case, when he started, writing and people were asking for more books and when are you getting the more books and he was only one man he said I'm going to have to bring out other people because I cannot write as fast and so that's when he started expanding and getting collaborators and some collaborations worked and some didn't and it really had to do with personalities although he's a really great guy I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm biased really obviously easy. but you know but sure but, but everybody's easy to get along with yes exactly so but you know and he's been able to stay with a couple of collaborators that they work really well together and, and, and are able to create together And and even though my Michael were blessed in the fact that his name is, is really the more prominent name, because of his giving nature, he always makes it a point that his collaborators go first. I mean this is a forethought that he had because he wanted to give that person to be elevated, you know, and credited. Right. So you will never see Michael Anderley and it's always so-and so and Michael Anderley, not necessarily because they're writing the whole thing, the individuals writing the whole thing, but because Michael wanted to elevate them. Now, again, you know, our readers want more and more and more. And so they wanted a lot more. And so then Michael started um, hit getting work for hire. And so whether you call it ghostwriters or, you know, in some instances he would come up with these ideas. And so you'll see stories that are created by, you know, created mm-hmm. by Michael Andre. Those stories are where he hired somebody else to write a lot of it, but it's his story and his creativeness putting together. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's basically where I think it comes out of a need. If if your reader base is coming to the point where you need to provide them more and more and more, that's where you start expanding. So he didn't do it with, oh, I'm going to create an empire and this is how I'm going to do it. It was more of reactive. My readers want more and therefore, how can I provide them more? And frankly, here at LMBPN, I know it sounds hokey, but at the core of who we are, both Michael and I and the people that we uh, like to associate ourselves with is we like to give back. And so we mm-hmm. always think of the reader. What does the reader want? You know, how, how can we be fair in pricing? Uh, how can we be uh, in our stories? How can we create stories that are good, that are going to be worth their time and value and effort? And sometimes we hit the mark and sometimes we don't. But that's, that's what we strive to do. That's
0: the, that's the mindset. Yes. Yeah, because I know there's definitely a um, – with Star Wars and Star Trek and all those universes that get written it's, it's controlled very much by the creator – you yes. know, of those universes. And then their people are, can then submit the different story ideas. And as long as they stay within that universe with whatever the guidelines they've got, they're able to, to run with that.
1: Right, right. Even uh, when was it the recent uh, – it was Star Wars, right? That was on Disney Channel. You had different directors directing the different – you know, because, again, you can't have just one person doing the many different things. So.
0: Right. Exactly. So you got, like, that happening. So then – on your um because you are so successful, I'd like to take these last like five, 10 minutes to uh, discuss like what have you found to be the most effective marketing tools that you have? Like when I I had a chat with Neil Gaiman, it's, oh, it's probably been 10 years now, 15 years now, when he was first breaking out of UK and into the United States, he said all this other stuff that was being done, the thing that made it go for me was he had his own social media, he had his own. Diary that he had his online channel that he, they did, and that's he just posted every day, and people followed it and just grew and grew and grew. And so when the book came out, he had his fifty thousand followers. Most of them bought the book, and it was a New York Times bestseller. And he built he built that way. Mm-hmm. What have you found that's worked the best for your company? I know. I mean, I I really enjoy. I was shocked that okay, I'm gonna tr- I'm going to start reading another vampire story. You know. <laughs> And then found it was so different and so unique. And she was so cool. And he gave me insights into his wife. I said, okay, good. Let's, let's, uh,
1: (laughs) too many, I would say. Yes.
0: (laughs) With her shoes and her clothes that she's wearing, all that stuff there. Sonia, so what have you found that's been the, the most successful for you that when you're starting out and then now that you're have a going concern?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, when you go back to the basics, developing your reader base. Um, So yes, you know, a a lot of people are on Facebook, right? Uh, We use Facebook a lot, although, you know, in all candor, Facebook is facing out, right? So it depends on the target, age, target that you want to access. And so... It's it's a lot of work, uh, a lot of work that you have to put in yourself and a lot of time and effort. Now, some people don't want to put in that time and effort and, right. and it's okay. Some people just want to sit down and write and they say, well, why can't I just sit down and write? You can, but then you have to outsource the marketing, right? You have to outsource to a marketing company and then you get into all kinds of myriad of issues with that. So it's a give and take, you know, I think at the end of the day, if you want to do your own marketing, you have to come down to the basics, which is develop a fan base and you can do it on YouTube, you can do it on Facebook, you can do it on TikTok. I see somebody um I won't mention their name but I see them and I can tell that they're putting in a lot of effort because they come through my feed every day, sometimes three times a day. And I look at their following, the number of followers and 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 I look at the likes and everything they're getting and they're not getting a lot. But you know what? He keeps on doing it. And I'm sure that you know he'll eventually get enough people where maybe he'll hit on somebody, you know, and yeah. so, so it's the effort that he's putting in. And initially he's not seeing a return, but it's all a matter of how much effort you want to put in. So that you either put in the effort of developing your fan base and marketing to your fan base, or you hire a company that does that for you.
0: I get it. Now, do you, when you started, cause you've got independent publishing, self-publishing and traditional, and so when you first started on the first, was Criterion Gambit the first series?
1: Yes, that was okay. a 10-pole series, yes. Yeah. That's so, where Michael would be sitting there doing this, and I was wondering what the heck he was doing so much. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> so um, was that self, or was that, did you go through Kindle uh, KDP on that one there to, to launch it? What was your first launch of your, of your line?
1: So I don't think there was any forethought, I mean, um, that I can think of from Michael. It's it's obviously, this is a Michael question, but from from what I remember, I don't think there was an issue of options of going or, you know, pitching the book or anything. Um, He comes from the digital marketing world. So he already knew how to market right into the digital realm, uh, Facebook ads and everything. So he decided to publish the book on his own. Um, I think Amazon, you know, gets a lot of bad rap for being the behemoth that they are, but a lot of people forget that it was actually an outlet where, where other people prior to them being available had, didn't have an opportunity to publish their books. And so, um, so Michael credits them a lot for the fact that when he published his book, there was an outlet where he could do it. And of course the wave of indie publishing came, it doesn't, uh, I don't want to get in in anybody writing me saying Michael was not the inventor. So that's not what I'm implying. I mean, we get hit sometimes for comments that we make. So all all I'm saying is that that there was a wave that happened, and he came around that time when it was coming up, pricing, and 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 he had that ability. Ability. Now, my understanding is that there's people who tried to go the traditional route and were rejected, and that's the only source that they had. But I I think that he just yeah. went straight to India because he knew how to market a book, and he was going to try it.
0: Good, and he obviously succeeded quite handsomely. So now as we come to the uh close here, I want to just circle back on the any particular website or any book or something like that. That's some maybe not a book because that's by the time it gets published, it's already out of date. But any um any place somebody could actually go to be themselves familiarized with Current copyright law, or what copyright laws in a non lawyer
1: way to be able to get it. Yeah. The best thing to do, literally, is to Google how do I protect my book as an author? And you're going to get tons. And I mean, articles, because, you know, in preparation for this meeting, I said, okay, I need to be up to date as to the latest cases. And um, I literally Googled, you know, AI and copyright protection relating to books. Mm-hmm. And so it, com- it came up with, and then uh, some of the articles were, how do I protect my book and writing? And then they went through the basics of, you know, you should file it when you can, you know, file with the copyright office and submit your book and pay $46, I believe for digital or 122 for paper. I mean, so they, it. That, I think that would, that, would, that would be the best way because you get a lot of resources. You can get the legal resources and expanded articles, or you can get the basics of how to do it. Uh, the caveat is obviously watch out, always watch out. And this is just in general. I do it all the time. Whenever you're looking for resources, look at who's providing that resource. Mm-hmm. Because if somebody's offering a service is filing it, they might seem like they're the right office, and, but they're not. You look at their, their um, uh, what, URL right, to see and make sure this a government office and not somebody who's just offering a service. But that's what I would do. Uh, that good. gives you both a legal terminology and basic straightforward terminology.
0: And I'm usually myself sometimes wary of just straight going to Wikipedia and see what Wikipedia says.
1: Oh, you know, I've never looked at Wikipedia.
0: That's good. I,
1: yeah, I, I, I never. Well, because I know, right, that it's, it's user-based so people can write in there. I actually, believe it or not, though, this sounds crazy, but it was about seven years ago. Uh, or eight more than that. I was in a meeting and this scientific person, we were there and I was the marketing person. This was, a, And they said, well, Wikipedia says, and I was flabbergasted. <laughs> so I'm like, wait, you're a scientist. We're developing a drug and you're using Wikipedia as a resource. I mean, that person didn't last long. And it's just oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Definitely crazy on that. Yeah, don't okay, use good.
1: I mean, with all due respect, I don't want anybody suing me, but I would not use Wikipedia, Wikipedia as a source.
0: No, it, it's yeah, it's it's user user fed, and all you need is a couple good enemies, and they'll just they can put all types of, of misinformation yes. in there. Oh yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. I think Elon Musk a few years ago said, Go ahead, you know, see everyone see because it just had all types of you know, it had false data about him. Yeah. And Um, No,
1: no. I would just, you know, again, there's uh, plenty of resources. Um, uh, uh, The easiest way is to uh, try to get as many resources and they they can be as as dry as legal terminology, you know, or as direct and basic. So, yeah. But the bottom line, the bottom line, stick to the basics. Jot down your notes, keep track of your work. If you publish your book and if you want to go ahead and get a copyright for it and and protection, do it. That's only going to protect you if you were ever in a lawsuit. That's going to be extra protection. But just know that your copyrightable work is copyrightable from the moment you started.
0: Good. Well, this has been great. I'm I'm really glad I ran into you at Frankfurt. Yes. That's for sure. (laughs) Because this is something that I wanted to address. I touched upon it a little bit with another person I met there at, at Frankfurt, and so this is we did a much more of a deep dive on this one here, which I I think is very very important. So thank you very much, Judith.
1: No, thank you, John, and thank you again to your listeners. And uh, just a reminder, it's all opinion.
0: <laughs> okay, good, yes, and thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and are available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation was introduced in 1899, and 2024 marks its 125th birthday. So happy birthday, and Carnation has been making delicious milk products for one and a quarter centuries, and is still going strong writers and illustrators of the future are contests created by Owen Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. For four decades, it is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. And again, thank you very much, Judith.
1: You're welcome.